From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Ivan Villarreal. And I'm your other host, Mark Olson. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. Mark, it was quite the busy weekend. How did it go for you covering the Globes? You know, it's funny. This was my first experience covering an award show in sort of a work-from-home environment like this. And I found it oddly stressful. Like, I was really anxious the whole time, like I was going to miss my category or something would, like, go awry. So it's funny, as much as, like, I should have just been just sort of, like, chilling out at home and there's an award show on TV, it induced a lot of anxiety. I I feel you. Like, I didn't want to watch from my bedroom where my desk was because I'd have to watch on the tablet. And I was like, I have to watch on the big screen. Well, not that my TV in my living room is really that huge, but... So I was like pushing my kitchen table into my living room so that I could have a setup and not just like be lounging on the couch. I wanted to feel like I was ready for business. And by the second commercial break, I did end up on my couch with the laptop. But, you know, everything got done. That's all that matters. I also thought it was interesting that people on our team, you know, were communicating with each other through Slack, instant messaging and things. And that people who have proper cable, who are not cord cutters, were like maybe 30 seconds ahead of people who were watching it through some online platform. So there was like this multiple conversations and responses. And I have regular cable. So I was like, I was living a minute in the future. It was strange just trying to like everybody not quite on the same page. Yeah, I'm I'm one of the cord cutters and I was like, I have to actively not look at Slack because you're spoiling everything for me. People are just like shouting names. And I'm like, does that mean they won or did they do something stupid? Like, what am I missing? It was it was a lot to take in, you know, but at one point I was just focused on Jodie Foster's dog and I just tried to live in that space the whole time. But we'll talk more about the Globes later in the show. Tell me about the special guest you're talking to this week. Well, today I'm talking with Steve McQueen, director, co-writer, and executive producer of Small Axe. You can watch it now on Amazon. It's an anthology of five films set in London's West Indian community in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And it really is just one of the most exciting sort of projects of, I think, you know, the last year or so. For me, these films are about love. That's what it's about. It's us. And I think when we come together, we can achieve any, any and everything. And it's about love, isn't it? I mean, I'm sorry, it sounds corny. I apologize. But that hopefulness through adversity is about love. You know, as somebody who can't get enough of inspirational quotes on Instagram these days, I'm all about what Steve McQueen is preaching. Um, but I understand he also compares directing to Tai Chi. Is that your mark? He did. I mean, he had some, you know, very interesting thoughts on sort of the philosophy of directing. He's obviously a, you know, an Academy Award winning filmmaker, and it's just a very exciting person to be talking to. And well, I can't wait to listen. It's coming up after this short break. At this time in the show, we turn the mic over to our writer, Glenn Whip to get a minute or two of awards news. 
But since the Golden Globes were Sunday night, we wanted to have a bit of a longer conversation with Glenn instead. How's it going, Glenn? Thank you, Yvonne, for breaking me out of the uh, solitary confinement of the awards minute. It's so uh, nice to join other people this one time. Thank you. Well, we're happy to have you, Glenn. And, you know, to my mind, there were like three things really happening. One was the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and sort of the show itself needing to respond to the reporting that we did here at the Los Angeles Times about the organization itself, both the sort of essentially corruption that exists within the group and also what kind of gained a lot more traction, which is the fact that there are currently and have for some 20 years now been no black members in the HFPA. Then there was also the fact that this was being done remotely, sort of a lot of it over Zoom, the sort of pandemic production of the Globes. And then there were the awards themselves. What did you make of the sort of like the confluence of those three tracks? Didn't it feel like kind of awake last night? I mean, that was my takeaway. It was just like all the awkwardness, the weird cutaways, the kind of strained laughter, the really desperate attempts to connect. It was bad television. And then the thing that was weird was that leading up to the show, and of course we were really involved in this um, and watching it and reporting it, was all these groups, the Screen Actors Guild, the Directors Guild, Time's Up, everybody's calling out the HFPA. And then the show started and it was just kind of like same old, same old. Barely any acknowledgement of all the controversy leading up to the show. It was really just kind of weird to watch that. As you wrote, Glenn, I mean, were you surprised that Amy Poehler and Tina Fey made a couple of jokes about the HFPA? There were three, you know, of the sort of like heads of the group who I think was at less than 60 seconds that they gave to acknowledging the controversy, which really only had to do with the sort of diversity of the group. They didn't say anything about the corruption aspects. And then very few of the winners said anything. I think people were expecting much more from the speeches. Were you surprised by that? Did you expect, let's say, those first couple of speeches that you would have heard people saying something more directly about the HFPA and like acknowledging how odd it was to be winning that award that night? I was really surprised and and. I have to admit, kind of angry, too. About 40 minutes into the show, I called my colleague Josh Rottenberg on the phone, and I had to just, like, vent. Like, are you watching this? Am I seeing what I'm seeing? Because no one was talking about all the controversy. It kind of got boiled down to, you know, leading up to the show that there were no black members in the HFPA, which is ridiculous, and it deserves to be called out. And then it was just sort of becoming like, well, the HFPA, if we admit some black members, will you forget about all the other horrible things that we do, all the other ethical lapses? They had three people come on and they spoke for 40 seconds, five sentences, and that was it. And they were like hostages on stage (laughs) reading these prepared statements But the weird thing was that, yeah, the reaction and the response of the nominees and presenters, everyone thanked the HFPA. Some just like, really, thank you, thank you, HFPA, for this wonderful honor. And you're thinking it's not an honor. It's not a wonderful honor. It's a sham. 
and everyone is pretending that it's not. Do you think any of that would have been different if this ceremony did take place in person? Do you think there would have been more people sort of ringing that bell? You know, you wonder about that. And I was talking to Josh leading up to the show, kind of lamenting that there wasn't a red carpet because I felt like, okay, people would walk the red carpet. I mean, not like the red carpet is like this gauntlet of truth or anything, but I would think that some of these questions would come up. Uh, Maybe not. I mean, now I'm watching the show. (laughs) I don't believe in anything anymore. (laughs) <laughs> Not that I did before. Not like I, you know, held up awards as some kind of, uh, you know, paragon of um, virtue and or anything like that. It's just, it's all silly. I, yeah, I, I don't know if the show was normal, if it would have been any different. I think there's a tremendous investment in keeping the Golden Globes around as a promotional vehicle. I should never be amazed at stars wanting to get awards. It's kind of sad. I just wish there was a little bit more integrity. Well, Glenn, let me sort of play right into the hands of that. You know, the Globes famously thought of as some kind of Oscar predictor. The truth of that is maybe another matter. There were, I think, some surprise winners last night, some folks that maybe you weren't expecting going in, particularly in the film categories. I think Rosamund Pike, Jodie Foster, Andre Day, those were all people that, you know, were not necessarily favored to win in a weird year like this, both for what's going on with the Globes and also just for how strange award season is, period. Does the Globes this year have any impact on the Oscar race? Are any of those surprise winners suddenly, you know, in the Oscar race? Like, do you think it has any impact? Well, Oscar voting begins on Friday, so... I think the impact it has is that still a lot of Academy members haven't been watching the movies this year. In the case of, say, the Jodie Foster film, The Mauritanian, I don't think too many people have watched that movie because it's revolving around Guantanamo Bay and nobody wants to watch a Guantanamo Bay movie during the pandemic and this isolation right now. So I think that's been a hard sell for, um, you know, its producers to get people to see it. And I think it was so great to see Jodie Foster Sunday night in her pajamas, her wife in her pajamas with their dog. I think Academy members owe Jodie Foster a little debt there. So watch her movie. That's the impact. Like, yeah, the United States versus Billie Holiday and um, Andre Day winning for lead actress drama. That movie just dropped on Hulu on Friday. So maybe it gives these movies a little leg up in terms of viewership. That's the one thing that comes out of it for sure. Well, Glenn, did you have any favorite part to the award show, maybe aside from Jodie Foster? Well, I did, as cold as my heart is, (laughs) as as angry and as cynical as I was watching the show, when Chadwick Boseman won for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and his wife came on and accepted it. I was really teary-eyed listening to her. Then they cut away to Renee Zellweger and she was tearing up. And I I just felt, God, I'm with you. I'm right there with you. And it really just made me feel his loss again. That was really emotional. That was my favorite part of the show. It was really, really devastating. Mark, what was your favorite part if you had one? 
I think that there were two. I think one was the award for Best Foreign Language Film to Minari, and the writer and director of that film, Lee Isaac Chung, accepted the award. He was with his young daughter at home, and just daughter. seeing the two of them was so sweet. And then what he said as far as sort of the what the movie was about and how it was about the language of love and the language of family both addressed the sort of ridiculousness that this very American movie was competing in the foreign language category, and then also just said something beautiful and truthful about the movie. I think also the Globes, oftentimes their Lifetime Achievement Awards are a real platform for a kind of a barn burner of a speech. And Jane Fonda certainly delivered last night. I think she addressed a lot of the concerns in the the room. She gave this almost like screening list. She started rattling off movies that she had seen this year that meant something to her, and many of them are ones that were, in fact, overlooked by the HFPA. And I just thought there was something very powerful and very moving in, in her speech as well. What about you, Yvonne? Well, Mark, you and I are, are so in sync these days. Those are my two favorites, but you spoke so eloquently about both. I don't know what I can add to them. But yes, for sure, uh, Lee Isaac Chung winning and like seeing his daughter when she said, I prayed, I prayed. Oh, it's just moved me so deeply the way that that film moved me so deeply I was I was very um happy to see that moment for sure uh but you know another moment that was such a joy to watch was Chloe Zhao winning for best director the first woman of Asian descent to win and only the second woman ever like to what Barbara Streisand for Yentl so she looked genuinely surprised uh that she got that win And, you know, I appreciated that she was in a sweatshirt and the pigtails. I wish I had as much confidence to rock the pigtails, but I was definitely sporting a Beatles sweatshirt during the night. And so I was there in in solidarity with her and Jason Sudeikis, for sure. Were you guys dressed up or dressed down? I was just dressed normal, business casual. (laughs) I love it. Well, Glenn, thanks for spending that time with us. Now let's get to Mark's conversation with Steve McQueen, the director of Small Acts. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I know maybe just to kind of get this question out of the way, recently Small Acts was named Best Film of the Year by the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, a group of which I am a member, and it's being submitted for the Emmys, but not the Oscars. And there's been a lot of conversation simply around what do you call this? How do you categorize the the project? When you were making it, did you think that it would sort of short circuit people's methods of categorization the way that it has? Well, there's, there's no complication, really. It was always made for television. I wanted to make it basically for my mother to sort of easily access it. The ethos of Small Acts is all about generosity and, and accessibility, you know, going to the people, going into their homes. And the only way I could have done that was through the process of television and, and, and streaming. And that so that was the basis of it. I mean, Small Axes is all about that, you know, the ethos. Um, and the fact that, you know, we, we were selected for Cannes and New York and, and other festivals, well, that was, a, you know, a really kind of honor. But no, it's, it's always been uh, for streaming and, and, and television. I mean, they're five films, but um, they are for that. And also in England, you know, again... We used to have these things called like Play for the Day and you have these things uh, in France with Arte, which are made for TV, but they're films. So there's no real complication. Because one of the things I enjoy so much about the project is how surprising and fresh it feels from film to film. The fact that every one of them looks and feels a little different. They're all different links. I mean, 
how did you come to have each film feel the way that it does and have these particular stories told in this kind of way? Well, the stories um, sort of ask that because we start in 68 and go all the way through, through, through the 70s to 84. And we have some great people working on the project, of course. And But also the style of people. It's the evolution in time, but also it's the evolution in style. It's the evolution in, in environments. And I think we had to get that right. So each look is different because of the time, but also because of the amazing people who yeah, we had working for us. Helen Scott, the art director, and, and Jacqueline Durant and, and Lisa Durant in working with the wardrobe. So again, working with those people, as well as, 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 as Shabier Krishna, the DP, who, again, it's all of those things that you have to sort of work with in order to sort of make something which is instinctive. And that's what we wanted to do. And even, like, you know, we work with different kind of film stocks. You know, Mangrove was 35, uh, Lover's Rock was digital, Red, White and Blue was 16, and so on and so forth. So it was about how do we get the smell, almost, you know, of that time and the touch and the taste of that time. And that's, you know, with all these collaborators, that's how we did it. And working very hard, of course. In a short, very short period of time. Ridiculous. Also, when you're having fun, when you're loving something, it's never difficult. So that was the, that was the joy, really. Because the, as I understand the process of how you made the films, you, you convened a writer's room, as one might do for television, but you sort of approached that process a little differently in that it was almost like it was in that process that you decided what the five stories would be, you figured out who the other co-writers would be. Everything was different because it starts off one way and it goes the other way. I mean, we were very fortunate with, with the BBC and, and Amazon when they came on that they gave, gave me carte blanche to sort of develop it the way I wanted to develop it. So if I were to turn left, I thought, no, no, I'm going to go right. It was everything was done in order to sort of help make these projects. First, I thought, OK, it's going to be one family over a period of time. It was always going to start in 68 and then sometime in the 80s. But then it, it got into these different stories because when I started, we started researching with associate producer Helen Bard, who was actually crucial in this, because as a researcher, these stories came out of the research. And I thought to myself, well, this can't be just one story. These have got to be individual stories. And I thought, why, you know, to some extent, invent a story when the, you know, these stories need to be told? These stories were swept underneath the carpet. They, they were kind of um, virtually invisible. But these stories helped to change the fabric of United Kingdom, England, Britain. Uh, they did. And, you know, in a way that will never be reversed. And I thought, well, we have to sort of honor these stories in, in, in a way. And therefore, for me, then it had to be separate ideas, separate films, separate initiatives. And the reason why I made the writer's room in, in the beginning was to sort of throw all those things, everyone empty their handbags and get all those things out through the research. And we had, through that writer's room, the two people who emerged who I wanted to work with, with Alice uh, Simmons and, and, and Courtney Newland, because that's just the process. It was the evolution, and things changed, things shifted, and I thought, okay, they, uh, these guys I wanted to work with. And that was it. And now, in some ways, I'm asking this question almost looking for guidance from you. Do you find it easier to talk about Small Acts as, like, a total project, or is it easier to talk about, like, the specifics and details of each individual film? I go left, I go right. I, whatever you want to talk about, I can talk about it. It's a joy. I don't have a, a right arm. I, I, I'm, I, I'm projectious in this case. Because one thing I wanted to ask specifically about, about Mangrove, the first film, it's set in mm-hmm. Notting Hill. That's a neighborhood that has since, you know, now is very gentrified. I think a lot of people yes. know it for better Absolutely. or worse from the film Notting Hill. 
the Notting Hill that's presented in Mangrove is much different than what I think a lot of people have seen in contemporary depictions. Was it important to you to sort of reclaim this version of, of the neighborhood of Notting Hill? I think the identity of Notting Hill, yeah, it was important, absolutely. Because in some ways, I think people try to erase people's identity from landscapes. And it was very important. I mean, that film, Notting Hill, you know, I don't know what to say. How do you make a film and call it Notting Hill without even tipping your hat to the black Western community in that? It's bizarre, but that's how it is. But that's gentrification, you know. Um, and I remember my mother saying in the 60s, early 60s, you know, you couldn't give a house away in, in Labrador Grove. Now you can't afford one. Also, it's, it's a part of my identity. You know, I was born within a mile of, of Notting Hill. We grew up in uh, Shepherd's Bush, was the next door neighborhood. So we were always going to the market. My knowledge of London is through trailing behind my mother with shopping bags, going to market to market to find out where the cheapest fish was or whatever it was. So yes, it was very important to sort of claw back that identity, but also because four small acts, you know, we have three films in West London, two in Labrador Grove, one in uh, Shepherd's Bush, which is, which is education. It was just very important to to feel the vibrancy of that community. And, and it's still there in a, in a very, you know, small way, but there is a community still there. And then also in, in Mangrove, the story becomes something of a courtroom drama, but there's something that just feels really different about it. I think it's the fact that in the story being told, some of the defendants, they represent themselves, so they're able to cross-examine witnesses. They sort of speak for themselves. And in a way, it just upends the whole notion of the courtroom drama. Like, they're these characters that normally would just be sitting there silently or suddenly speaking for themselves. And was that something that you were thinking about in telling that story? Very much so, because what happened was this was the first time in history that Black people were allowed to cross-examine, question, and bring to account the establishment on a seemingly level playing field. And again, it's a very, when you go to the Old Bailey, which is the highest court in the land, my goodness, and you're being put up for crimes against the state, you know, you know a riot and a fray. This isn't a sort of, um, how can I say, this is an innocent move. This is a deliberate move to make a point. And what happened with, with this community was the gallery was turned into a congregation and the stand was turned into a, a preacher's podium. Yeah? So basically what happened in that situation was the West Indian community turned it, changed it, molded it slowly but surely into a place of righteousness. They took over the environment of a place of the old guard into a place of righteousness through their actions, through the sound. They turned it into a church, you know, and that's the interesting thing where when you're allowed to speak, and that's why it was so important for me to, to hear um, someone like Malachi, who was extraordinary as um, dark as hell, and Letitia, as Anthea Jones Lequant, say these words, which have never been heard before. They've never been heard before. This is the first time black people can stand up and bring to account and cross-examine the establishment of the United Kingdom. That's why it was different. That's why it was different. We made it ours. And as um, Barker said, you know, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care.
And now in making these five films, it just feels like such an undertaking. Can you tell me about just the production of the films? Like, were you, I don't even know, were you shooting them concurrently or? I feel like Ringo Starr, you know, a little help from my friends. Do you need anybody? I just want someone to love. But yes, it was about that, man. It was about that love. That was about that camaraderie. It was about that sort of coming together with, you know, Alistair Simmons, with Courtney Newland, Helen Scott, with, you know, Jacqueline, Chabier. You could do anything. Because when you've got a team and people believe in what you're doing, uh, you know, it's, it's a big thing. You know, Chris Dickens, is, you know, again, we editing during the COVID lockdown, you know, his kids in, in at home, my kids at home, but we got through it. So it was just one of those things where I think it was, it was, the, there was a fire in our belly for sure, because these are bringing up these stories, which the amount of research that got into this through Helen Bart and, and, and others and myself and the firsthand interviews were just amazing. Ian McDonald, the defense lawyer, unfortunately he died off. I mean, one of the main things why I wanted to do small acts was because I wanted to do things before people passed because there were a lot of people passing. I thought, I have to do it now. There's no if, there's no but, there's no maybe. I have to do it now before things disappear. And I think with, with that came a lot of support and, you know, you could do anything, can't you? And again, that is, that is a small axe ethos, you know? You throw the big tree with a small axe. It mainly make a lot happen. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, about the title itself and that notion of the you are the big tree, we are the small axe here to cut you down. What to you is being cut down with this project? What does the small axe sort of represent? I think it speaks for itself, doesn't it? I mean, again, it's us coming together as a community and, you know, changing things, doing things. You understand me, I understand you. Let's do something together. You can't, little that you can achieve on your own is little. But what you could achieve with many is, you know, you can move mountains. And that's what it's about. That's what it's about. That, that, that's it. Because it, again, in the small axis, you have people who say, okay, you don't want to let me in here. You don't let me, okay, I'll make it myself. I'll do it myself. I'll do, we'll do it ourselves. Keep on moving. Don't stop. You know, again, don't let people sort of tell you what you can and can't do. You just keep on going. That's what, that's what small axis is about. And that's what the Western Indian community has done. And that's why I'm here talking to you right now. Absolutely. And now the British historian, David Osoga, he was writing in the magazine Sight and Sound, and he said how the, the films are now just inextricably linked to this moment that they're being released to this sort of the the cultural upheaval that they're now a part of, even though you've been working on this project for many years that wasn't conceived or made with this cultural moment in mind. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the way the films are being received and the moment they're being released to? So with respect to what you're talking about, cultural moment, you're talking about the killing of, of George Floyd. Look, no one can anticipate, well... I don't know what to say about that. That's a falsehood, what I just said. Don't anticipate that. Black people get killed every day without anyone being there unlawfully. Um, look, it's just a difficult situation to talk about in a way because I'm very grateful that I was able to make these pictures and put them out there and go to directly to people's homes. And at the time, because of George Floyd, it was just difficult. It wasn't at all... It was just difficult. I can't really talk about it even now, really, or articulate it now. Not about sort of, uh, oh, yes, uh, it sort of got added value because of this unfortunate situation. It's not my, you know, it's not my bag. But I, uh, as an, I'm stuttering here because it's difficult to talk about. It's difficult to process. It still is. It's not an easy thing to think about and, uh, and talk about, really. Sorry, that was a very, <laughs> that's how it is with me right now on, on that subject. Sorry. Yeah. But as you were working on the project... I mean, you were sort of completing some of the films and still working on them. As, as I understand it, it was 
over the summer, you were still working on Red, White, and Blue, which stars John Boyega, when he gave this very stirring speech at one of the Black Lives Matter protests in Hyde Park in, in London. Did you feel like the passion that he had in that moment giving that speech, was there some back and forth with the project? Was some of that energy coming from what he was working on? And do you think he brought some of that back to the project? Well, we were very far into shooting when those protests happened. What happened, I think we, and John will say that, we sort of, you know, gave him some kind of awareness to an extent when we were making this project with Man and Blue and, and with Small Axe. And I think what happened with that George Floyd thing, there was a, a passion, a, a fire that was lit. And it was coincidentally at the same time we was making our project with him that he sort of gave that impassioned speech. And unbeknownst to me, I didn't know that in that audience was Leroy Logan. Leroy Logan, who John was portraying in Red, White and Blue, was in that audience, I was, I don't know, 4,000 people, listening to John's passionate speech. So sometimes art and, and real life sort of, you know, overlap. And I think after that speech, we did a scene when John goes into the pool room, the snooker room, rather. He's lit up. So he was giving us things in that moment because somehow... He was embedded in that character. And I think what happened with that demonstration, his speech, just, he brought something new to the, the, the occasion. And now how do you, as a filmmaker, recognize that in the moment? And in part, I'm asking because the performances you get in the five small acts films are just all remarkable. But also in all of your films, you have such a facility with actors. You get such strong performances out of actors always. How do you define your relationship with actors? How, how do you like to work with them? I love actors. It's what a noble cause. They, they portray humanity. They portray who we are. Wow. You know, so I love them in the way that, you know, I want to be there for them. I want to support them and how they could be. I think for me, everything has to be right from the catering to the, the sparks to, you know, the grips, the gaffers, to, you know, going all the way to, to the camera and, and the hair and makeup. Because for me, actors, they're very sensitive. You have to make the environment an environment where they feel, oh, okay, it's safe, it's safer. I could explore, I could experiment, I could try things out, I could fail, fail better, you know? It's one of those places where you can actually feel safe and secure and feel that everyone is there for each other. When you make that environment, then an actor could fly, literally. They could literally fly. I've seen actors levitate. I'm not even lying. They get to that moment when they feel that they can actually achieve something through the environment. And all they've got to do is be present. And it's amazing. I'm honored by them, honestly. Bloody hell. I'm going on a bit about actors. But it's, it's, it's one of those things where when you, you, you see it, you, you smell it, you see it. I mean, I'm talking about smell all the time. But the reason why I'm talking about it is because another sense happens. Something else happens, which is very difficult to sort of articulate. But you just know it when it happens. And they feel it. It's like electric shock. I don't think anyone's written about small acts and not mentioned the moment in Lover's Rock when a group of people are dancing to the song Silly Games and the, the song ends and they, they continue to sing the words to the song. They continue to dance. There's something so sensual about that moment, something you can just really feel and you just touch in that moment. And as, and as I understand it, that was not scripted. That was something that just happened as you were filming what is that like when a moment like that sort of erupts while you're filming? What did you feel in the in the moment? Well, we had Dennis Dennis Durrell in the picture, who is um, the producer of Lovers Rock, who plays the old man who lives at the lodge upstairs. He actually wanted to be a, a bus conductor. I said, no, no, I have plans for you, Dennis. I knew to some extent that people would sing because, you know, we prepped it a little bit, whatever, but I didn't know how it would go. 
directing for me is almost like it's Tai Chi. You have to allow things to happen. You have to go with it. And it's almost like you try to sort of form yourself to the energy which is in the room and just to redirect it slightly, gently. And the vibe. What is the vibe to bring it up? To get people to be in a moment, like I told you, like electricity. So it's one of those situations where when there's electricity in, in, that, in that room, it's just let it go, let it go. All those sort of variations of silly game, that was not script. You can't do that. Actors are feeding off each other. And again, these are great actors. This isn't just sort of, okay, let's do this. These acts have to remain within the period as far as body language and as far as ritual. So they stay within the period. But within that period, they have a sense of themselves within that. So that was absolutely brilliant. And of course, when we get into sort of um, Kunta Kente, when that needle drops, oh my God, it's like a dog. When I heard that track for the first time, it's like a needle going. It's like a dog whistle going off. I went, you know, nuts. So people see each other. It was spiritual in a way, but also it just flowed. We shot Lovers Rock in nine days, you know, bang, 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 because the energy, the flow, the feel, you know, the, the vibe. Again, I think the whole of Small Axe, we shot so fast. I mean, I don't know. I don't even know what fast is. And if it's, if it's not good, then shoot it again. If it's good, you, you stop, you know, simple. And now, as you've been pursuing your career as a feature filmmaker, you also have maintained a career as a fine art maker. You recently had a retrospective of your work. You had a, a new exhibition of photos of school children. Does your art making and your filmmaking are they connected to you? Are they coming from the same place? Are they different things? What is the relationship to you between those two practices? There isn't any. There isn't any. I mean, you know, it's the idea tells you what it wants to be. The idea tells you, okay, I, I want it to be an artwork. The idea tells you, you know, okay, I want it to be a feature film. The idea tells you, okay, I want it to be a TV series. The idea dictates what it wants to be. So if it wants to be a photograph, it's the idea. That's it. You know, the idea tells you what it wants, what form it wants to be. That's all. And now in Education, the last film in the series, a character at one point says explicitly, I feel let down by this country. And there is just an intensity to small acts. There is an emotional quality to small acts. And yet somehow I still feel at the end of it that there's something positive, something hopeful about it. And I think it's the fact that the last image you see in the, in the project is of a young boy looking up. Given the, the complicated feelings that all of these films deal with, what is it that you kind of want people to walk away from the project with? Well, it's not about want. I, I really don't like that question. Nothing to do with you. But I'm not putting anyone in a straitjacket. But all I can say is I don't want to put anything, I don't want to impose my want on anyone. But for me, these films are about love. That's what it's about. It's us. And I think when we come together, we can achieve any, any and everything. And it's about love, isn't it? I mean, I'm sorry, it sounds corny. I apologize. But that hopefulness through adversity is about love and faith. You know, we'll get through this. We'll get there, you know. And also, if we come together, we could shelter from the storm, you know. When you work together with people, what can't you do? There's nothing you can't do. I know over the summer, you published an op-ed that was about race and class in the British film industry and how so many people feel that it's just not for them and that you feel that generations of actors, filmmakers, technicians, craftspeople have been lost because they simply were never even allowed in the door in the first place. Do you feel that sort of recent 
changes by the the BAFTAs, by the, the Motion Picture Academy here in America. Do you feel that steps are being made to address that issue and that there there is any hope of progress moving forward? You're talking about Mount Everest right now. I'm not even at base camp. I'm in training somewhere in a rock climbing class somewhere, an indoor rock climbing class. What I mean by that is I'm interested in focusing on young people who are interested in being editors, producers, directors, camera person, you know. It starts with giving this person the idea that, hey, you know what? You could be in film. You know what? You could be in TV. And what we did on Small Acts, of course, we basically in every department had two persons of color as an apprentice on each individual profession as as far as sort of on the crew and in the production office. Because it's very important for me to sort of do that. And as well as hiring, you know, heads of department who were people of color. I wasn't doing it because they weren't talented, because they were absolutely beyond talent, but they weren't given the opportunity. And that was it. It's all about that. And giving people an opportunity. I'm just thinking about Lisa Dukan and, and Sherbet. This is the first time there have been heads of department. Well, not Sherbet, but, but on a large project like this, absolutely. You know, he's never had anything, anything remotely like this. And of course, uh, maybe no one else has, actually, to be honest. But hey, guess what? Having faith in young possibilities, why not? We're going to die anyway. Come on, let's do it. But do you feel like that that act, that that's starting to climb that mountain? And do you think that there are other people in the industry, either in, in the UK or, or here in America, who are trying to make similar steps? I don't know what other people are doing. I, again, you can't wait for people. <laughs> that's what Smarts is about. I'm not waiting for no one. You know, if I have to wait, I'll die a long time. You know, so just get on with it. Try to open the door for other people, you know, like people did for me. You know, we have Betty Davises, we have sort of, you know, Montgomery Cliffs, we have sort of Harry Bolafontes, we have Lena Horns, who are not in our industry because they were not invited. That's unfortunate. So, you know, we have things to make up for. And if you don't mind, I'd like, I'd like to ask you a question about your previous film, Widows. I am just such a fan of that film, Steve. It is such a thrilling action movie. To me, it's like kind of everything you sort of want from a movie, and yet, when it came out, it didn't really find an audience. It wasn't particularly recognized for awards. Why do you think that is? Do you have any sort of perspective on the movie from where you are now? How does that make you feel as an as an artist to work on something like that that seems just like so well-crafted and it's just kind of not received maybe in the way you would have hoped? Well, it was received, but it wasn't received as far as box office is concerned. I can't say that every other comment on it was about the marketing, um, and I can't say that it wasn't about the marketing. I think a lot of it was about the marketing. Um, but hey, you know, not everything you do is going to sort of get where you want. The fact that you made it and the fact that you believed in what you did and those performances, I think, you know, Viola was tremendous in that picture and everyone else. It's just one of those things where you have to sort of uh, move on and, and, and just keep on doing. Because again, the, the fact that anything of yours is going to be recognized is not is not a slam dunk, far from it. But the fact that people can look at that movie now and think about it, that's the main thing. And then just the the last question I have for you is, you've been very busy over the last few months, so I, I don't know if you've had a lot of time to spend watching things, but so many people have spent a lot of time, you know, watching a lot of movies, a lot of television. Is there anything that you've seen recently that you particularly liked or that you would want to recommend for other people to watch? I love First Cow. I thought that was a beautiful movie. I thought it was very beautiful. I loved it. I thought it was really beautiful. I loved everything about it, really. And what is it you liked about it? Everything. <laughs> um, I, you know what I liked about it? 
just, it was so simple. The story was simple. It's about a cow and milk and opportunity and the establishment and people trying to get themselves established and America at a time uh, where you don't really see that America often and the cross-section of people, you know, and how life for certain people were cheap. Um, yeah, it was, I thought it was absolutely beautiful. You know, one of the things I liked about that conversation was hearing Steve talk about his dedication to paying it forward, you know, really getting young people into writing, editing, producing all aspects of production. And I liked hearing that he, you know, included two people of color per unit to apprentice. Um, What did you think about that, Mark? I was struck by that as well. I mean, I think, you know, Steve McQueen is so thoughtful as a filmmaker, as an artist, and to see him bringing that same sort of care to the production itself and the fact that, you know, this is such a personal project for him. And part of that is he feels that the stories he's telling with small acts are ones that he has not seen on the screen, that those stories have not been accessible to him, that the industry has not been accessible to someone like him. And so to see him try to make sure that for a future generation that doesn't happen, that those doors do open, I thought, aside from the stories that he's telling with small acts, which are deeply moving, to hear him talk about the production itself in that way, I thought was really emotional and moving as well. Well, you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about Small X, and it's one of those few uh, projects this year that I still haven't gotten around to seeing. So it's definitely on my list, you know, but I did get around to finally watching Minari, which just, you know, as we talked about earlier uh, in this episode, it really stayed with me days later. Um, Is there anything you caught up on in the time since we last spoke? I think we haven't spoken at all about the television show Dickinson, which just recently had its like wrapped up its second season. And I feel like that show just is getting better and better. It's really the second season was just fantastic. And it's one where I can't remember exactly how many episodes it was, but I was like, it's done. That's it. Like I definitely could use more like immediately. And also that's a series I think has really been benefiting from being week to week. It's not on the binge model. And you wrote about that show, didn't didn't you, Yvonne? Yeah, I spoke with the creator and showrunner Alina Smith, who's great. And, you know, she was working on season three during the whole insurrection. And it was interesting to sort of talk to her about how how working on season three, which will be about the Civil War, how that was a weird dynamic to be thinking about at that time. Uh, But yeah, speaking of week to week, I really feel like that has helped a lot of shows. Like it's something that I lean on more and more. I find I like having that break. So I was glad you mentioned that because I think it really does help people get into these shows to not feel overwhelmed by them. But Well, I think early in the pandemic, you know, we had stuff like Tiger King and you just watched the whole thing and it was like eating a whole bag of potato chips or whatever. And then I think now that we sort of have gotten into this more like we're in this for the long haul mindset, like you kind of want your little morsel every week that you can enjoy, but also know you've got more coming down the line because we're still going to be here watching TV, like who knows how long into the future. So I I think you're right. I think it's funny how we're like binging was like the thing at first, like we've sort of shifted into this more like elongated model. 
Well, and there there are films that I'm still trying to catch up on, like watching the Golden Globes reminded me, oh, I haven't watched that yet and I need to find time. And that leads into who you're speaking to next week, who's behind a film that is on my list as well. Talk to us about who you're speaking with. That would be Shaka King, director, co-writer and producer of Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, It stars Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield. It tells the story of Black Panther leader Fred Hampton and William O'Neill, the FBI informant whose information led to Hampton's killing. It's just a very powerful film with these really extraordinary performances. It's actually a heavy thing to sit with. You know, these events 51 years ago, they'll never stop reverberating. And, you know, there are a lot of Panthers who are still in prison as elders. And so it's just like a lot of gratitude, I feel, but also just a lot of weight and uh, to some degree responsibility. Come back next week to hear Mark's conversation with Shaka King. The Envelope, the podcast, is hosted by me, Yvonne Villarreal, and by my colleague, Mark Olson. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our audio engineer is Mike Heflin. He also made our theme song. If you like The Envelope, the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star review on Apple. The Envelope is created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.